then suddenly she turned to face me. How far did you say you were going? Los Angeles. L.A.? L.A. is good enough for me, mister. That's what I was afraid of. What'd you say? Oh, nothing. Just thinking out loud. People get in trouble for doing that. What's your name? You can call me Vera if you like. You live in Los Angeles? No. Where are you coming from? Oh, back there. Needles? No. Oh, sure. Phoenix. You look just like a Phoenix girl. Are the girls in Phoenix that bad? Everybody, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. The premise of this show, in case you don't know already, is that Mike and I decide to watch movies. We watch them separately, but don't discuss them until the podcast starts rolling. This week, we're going to be doing Detour, the terrific film noir film by Edgar G. Elmer, uh, 1945, with a screenplay by Martin Goldsmith. Um, I just watched this again last night, and it's easy to watch more than once because it's only something like 68 minutes long. In part one, we always talk about our overall takes on the film. Mike, what was your overall takeaway? Sometimes we just get sent a link to this movie. That's that's what happened to me. You just sent me a link to this movie and you were like, it's it's 70 minutes. Just watch this movie. I'm utterly bowled over by this movie. It truly transports you places that you did not expect to go. I think that there are certain films that are thought of as indie films, partially because they do this really well, where they don't deliver what you expect them to deliver. And this movie just gets you started in the middle of nowhere and then leaves you utterly stranded in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, you know, I have to say, of course, the mic test on the podcast is, you know, if you can get in and out in 90 minutes and boy, this movie passes with absolute beautiful flying colors. Uh, What is like, if you had to choose one adjective that describes how this movie makes you feel, what would you say? Uneasy. Yeah. I, and I, I feel gutted. I don't, I felt like I could, uh, I was actually watching Unforgiven last night and I stopped it. And so what I thought I would do is just do like a movie Saturday. I thought I'd just watch this and then eat something and watch Unforgiven um, and and be lazy. But uh, there's no watching anything else after this. The only thing I could do is watch this again. Yeah. Because after you watch this, the night's over. You're not you're not turning on something again after this. That's it reminds exactly me it of I, I said uneasy, and you know what else it reminded me of? It reminded me of another movie we did for the podcast that we both love that I think has the same feel of unease. You know what it is? I am a fugitive from a chain gang. Yes. Right. Not because because think about it. It's it both in both movies. You have a guy who's innocent. He panics. And then there's all this great dramatic irony, which is like a dime a dozen in movies. But those movies do it really well. This and chain gang do it really well. Right. Like all that tension of him being discovered. Like when um like when he goes across the state line, into California. Any poultry, any livestock. Is this your name? And they're like looking at him. Or how about even when he's sleeping at the hotel and the maid knocks on the door and he gets all nervous and you get all nervous? Or when he goes to buy the car, what's your insurance company? I don't really know. Well, surely you know the name of your insurance company. And also like Fugitive, like he takes on this whole new identity, right? Like he pretends to be Haskell and then he has to pretend to be married to Vera and stuff. So like they both have that going for them. And it's that same sense of dread in each one. There's no plot armor in this film. No, there's no. no plot armor in this film. You never go through this film and think, well, nothing could happen to him because... The movie would definitely survive. Right. And I don't know any movies or screenplays or directors brave enough to recreate 
that same sense. And again, because I'd never read about it, I'd never seen it before. You never described it to me. This was a very unique viewing experience because literally anything could have happened. Right. And as, as one of the themes of the podcast is we mentioned a certain actor who we both think is very, we both love this guy, but it's kind of funny because he's become to be like the, who has plot armor, right? What would happen if Tom Hanks played Al? Exactly. Or I was, and I was thinking about Unforgiven, you know, which I stopped watching, right? Which right. is, you know, he's going to have some kind of encounter, but you know, nothing happens to Clint Eastwood until the last five minutes. Right. Literally anything could have happened to this guy, especially after he picks up Vera, you know, yeah. or before or at, anything could have happened at any time. And this movie just forces you to swallow it. It's like being spoon fed a movie, just one spoonful at a time. Yeah. Okay. In part two, we'll talk about our favorite moments. So welcome back. In part two, we always talk about our favorite moment or a moment that makes us think about the film as a whole. Mike, what's yours? My moment is when they're driving back from the car dealership and she tells them that that once they've got the cash, uh, she wants to stop and get that mink coat, which it, the 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 97 pound gorilla in the room is that she's hinting that she'll never let him go. And and that's what's going to happen. You know, she, she pretends to, to detest. Right. She pretends to detest him. She pretends that she's going to um, that she's going to roll on him. Uh, but of course, what you can see is that is like these dark tentacles just coming out and wrapping around him forever and him being squeezed, which, of course, you know, we'll we'll talk about in the ending. But I think one of the reasons we were flailing in part one is that you can't talk about this movie without without no. talking about her. Uh, I don't I can't actually tell you what it is about the delivery of that line that makes that makes it for me. Um you can think of this movie as a noir. I think that the beautiful and most creepy thing about the way that she delivers that line is it's in bright sunlight, like on a San Bernardino afternoon with the top of the convertible down. And she's just, it's its just evil in broad daylight. Uh, I've never seen Anne Savage in a movie before. This is my first experience of her ever. But she electrifies this movie and utterly takes it over. That's not an insult to anybody else in this movie. But of course, you th you think that the actor playing Haskell is going to take over the movie, right? You're you're utterly convinced that this is going to become some some sort of like Tom Berger esque adventure where some the crazy hitcher. guy. It's going to be the Hitcher, with right? And, exactly, and it's some you know some guy gets you into hijinks, um, and it's it's utterly not that. It's it's a dark noir with a real villain in broad daylight. I can't remember the last time I saw a movie in which somebody appeared in almost the middle. And this is, she comes 33 minutes in. So it almost is the middle of the film, right? And takes over it so completely. And I was trying to think like, what are other movies we love where a minor character kind of takes over for a while? So I'm kind of like, uh, all right, the way like, like, you know, Hyman Roth and Godfather too, but like, no, he's in there from the beginning. Like, like everyone we like as a quote unquote minor character, they're there from the beginning. She enters this movie the way the Tasmanian devil enters like every Bugs Bunny cartoon or the way Kramer enters Jerry's apartment, right? She just, she's, she's a force of nature. I thought to myself, well, um, the most famous, you know, Roger Ebert said the greatest entrance in movie history is Orson Welles in the third man. When you see, when you see, um, you know, Harry Lyme in the alley and that's like a dramatic entrance, but that's not the way she enters this, you know, she enters his world and literally like flips the table the way that De Niro flips the table in the beginning of Raging Bull. Yeah, no, this is, um, this is like Psycho in reverse. I, I I wrote down reverse Psycho. I cannot believe you said that because, right, the shock of having the lead exit is counterpoised by the shock of having the lead enter half an hour into it. And, I can't and believe you said that. She's been in the movie five minutes and you go, Were, was there a half an hour of this movie yeah, that she wasn't right. in? 
And she totally takes over. Like, like, I love the way she talks to him. Like, like, go ahead. Just say hello. Nice day. Here, I'll, be, I'll be her. Go. Hello. Shut up. What do you think? Who do you think you're talking to? A hick? <laughs> Let's get going. You sap. Like those scenes in the car where they're just driving around and she's yelling at him and hectoring him are so great. And by the way, the way that they're talking over each other makes you think who directed this movie? David Mamet. Uh, I was going to say Howard Hawks, but I'm oh, or Howard Hawks. Right. Yeah. Exactly. No, like she's. Howard Haw- yeah, it's it, her. There's no, there's no actual gunfire, unlike an actual noir in this movie. There is only her speaking. Yes, it's it's. You would almost, you could almost imagine like Robert Mitchum and all the other people in Out of the Past watching this film, going, "These guys have a problem. They got to slow down." <laughs> like marriage counseling. Un- <laughs> it's unbelievable, right? Like what you do, kiss him with a wrench. You can't even keep up with like the lines you want to remember for the podcast. Um, you know, I'd hate to see a fellow as young as you sniffing that perfume they give in Arizona to murderers, like one after another. But but what's so great about her? She's so great. Is that there's all those weird, creepy, tentacle, tender moments. Moments, like when they're ho- when they're in the hotel room together, they run out of booze. That's great. They run out of booze and they're stuck there like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. And uh, she puts her hand on his shoulder and says, I'm going to bed. And he kind of rebuffs her. And then she gets mad again. No, she's she makes it clear that she's so utterly lost. It, it's it's the least subtle, subtle performance that I've ever seen, because it, y- you're intended to hear the machine gun blast of her talking. But then you're forced into an interpretive mode where you're trying to figure out what it means at all times. And then it, it's utterly clear, but, but then you're stung by the rejection on her behalf. Uh, it's very complicated and claustrophobic and, and the, the movie's claustrophobic. Like, again, yeah. I know we've said it three times now, no, yeah, it's only it 70 minutes. So you don't even have time to catch your breath. It, it, you're on, you're on the open road, but then you're in that, that apartment that they have to rent this lousy apartment. This apartment stinks. And I let you said, it's very complicated because it is the first thing he says to her after he sees her and he's looking at her and he says she was she was beautiful in a homely kind of way. And he's looking at her profile. He says to her, how far are you going? And do you remember what her answer is? How far are you going? <laughs> like, like that's that's the relationship is he's trying to get information or see what's going on or make small talk. And every time they t- they, they can't communicate or at least they, they keep communicating in like one upmanship. Okay, so what what was your moment? My moment was I had to talk about Vera as well. It was when she, uh, you know, she was just as rotten in the morning as she was the night before. And that you know, they're, 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 Vera tries to get them playing house. Vera tries to get them to do this kind of like fake weird domesticity. Like we, like that, that scene we love so much of the supermarket and I'm double indemnity when they're like, we're just going food shopping together. And then she has the sunglasses they can't on. look at each other. Yeah, right. Exactly. So it's kind of funny that like they register uh, under <clears throat> Mr. and Mrs. Haskell and they go to the apartment. They have their, she has her packages with her and stuff. And then they go to, they go to the, um, the car dealership. I love that. And she says, uh, I spent all this money and all this time getting ready. Don't I rate a whistle? And he whistles like, so she still wants him to say she looks pretty, but he won't because he just wants her out of his life. He wants to get out of them. He wants to get out of the movie. Yeah. And, and there's so much math involved in this movie. Cause it's like $787, but then she spent 85 on makeup. Yep. But like, by the time you're done with the movie, you're like, how much is two ham sandwiches and coffee? Yeah. <laughs> right? and they even tell you that the, they even tell you that the song that he plays in the beginning costs a nickel. Yes. If you, if you have change nickel. for a dime. And the guy tries to open the cashier and his wife smacks him on the hand. Yeah, there's a lot of math in the movie. The blue book value of the car. Yeah, he keeps saying 1850, 1850. Then you'd 18... be out 1850 and you'd, right. you'd be kicking yourself. But remember course, how much the father-in-law has? Uh, like $3 million or $7 million? Million. $15 million, right. So there's a lot of numbers in this, right? And, and you get the sense that Vera can do all that math and that all Al wants is like, please, can I, can I just go home and watch TV?
All right. I have a bonus moment, but I think it's, it's going to take us into the ending or, or the title uh, or the key takeaways, which is when she tells them that they're not going to sell the car and it, and she shows them the newspaper and you're forced to read it for yourself. That I, that's one of my favorite conventions from, from old movies, which is that um, Haskell senior is dying and is leaving a fortune. And so their creepy little domesticity also comes with a father-in-law. Um, and the beautiful thing about it is there, there's something unwritten about this movie. Like they're, they're writing it while they're doing it. Right. Because you can imagine two screenwriters posing this plot, right? It's like, okay, he's going to try to pose and get the money. And the other screenwriter goes, nah, man, that'll never work. Cause he, he like, he doesn't know what his mother's name is. He doesn't know what his first communion was. I don't even he know if I know- had a dog. I don't even know he, if I had a dog. He doesn't know anything. Um, but the beautiful thing is rather than resolve those tensions, they just put those tensions in the mouths of the character while they try to plot, right? Because when you're watching noir, right? If you watch um, Asphalt Jungle or something, the beautiful thing about Asphalt Jungle is that the plan is the MacGuffin, right? It's right, like, right. I, I've been thinking about this plan for seven years while I was in prison and you know something's going to go wrong. The beautiful thing about this is it's that, but in reverse. Because yeah. they're writing the plan and it just might go right, but it'll probably go wrong. But they've only been thinking about it for seven minutes yeah. But of course, while they're thinking about it, those seven minutes are on screen. There's like the one weird couch and the phone and all the cigarette butts and the cards. And there's just something so seedy and claustrophobic about it that it makes me feel like I can smell smoke. Novels drive me crazy when they're written in the present tense. But this film seems like it was shot in the present tense. Absolutely. Yeah. It seems like that, like literally when she runs in to pull him out of the car dealership, you are, you are so taken aback because the first time you watch it, you think what she found a better car dealership. She found a different Kelly blue book price, like two doors down, but then she pulls out the newspaper and you're like, what? And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And of course the craziness of the plot, that's what we can talk about. That's what I want to talk about for the title is that, um, yeah, well, you'll just pretend to be the guy who hasn't seen his father in 15 years because he used his father's dueling sword to poke out another kid's eye and then left home and like all this crazy stuff. But the movie makes you so paranoid that you really start to believe in these things that on the surface, on a treatment level for a screenplay, like you said, with the screenwriters, one of them would say, what are you talking about? Because ultimately, and the movie ends right before this, one screenwriter would say, well, didn't the guy have a long scar done it? Right. And, and that's of course the next gimmick. That's like the unfilmed gimmick uh, in this, in this movie yeah. is that they, they would have to uh, slash him with something and wait until it scars over. This movie's just creepy. It's also our, our second film we've done with a duel that's important to the plot that we do not get to see. That's true. Yeah. So you can go through our back catalog and find the other one. So let's talk about the ending. <clears throat> The ending of the title, right? So the opening shot, you have a you have a man on a road, right? You have a you have a guy on a journey, and what is a detour? Right? A detour is an unexpected turn, and this movie put me in the mind very much of an author that I know we both love, and that author is Thomas Paul Auster. I thought of Paul Auster and Thomas Berger too. Somebody said, but Paul, right, who wrote that great book, The Music of Chance, who writes a lot about coincidence and about how things that seem literary or things that seem um, cheesy or trite. Uh, or deus ex machina in, in literature happen in real life all the time. Like people have have unbelievable things happen to them all the time, right? So in the film, Vera says people tr- knock themselves out trying to buck fate. 
And, you know, some, the, I think the Haskell says, um, you didn't have much luck, huh? He's like, yeah, it's all bad. But then, of course, he thinks he does have good luck, right? He, I met this guy who's kind of normal. He's going all the way to L.A. But then that guy turns out to be, the, you know, the purveyor of fake hymnals. And, and I love the fact that Al says, I keep wondering what would have happened to my life if that car hadn't stopped, right? And he says, someday a car will pick me up I hadn't anticipated. Fate or some mysterious force can put the finger on me for no good reason at all. And that's what I want to think about for no good reason at all. Fate can be very kind if we want, right? Like we, like so many, like, like millions of other people, I met my wife totally by chance. And here you are later, right? Like, like you meet people just by chance. They just get thrown into your life and you're kind of like, it seems great. Like, but, but in, in here, fate is totally malevolent, right? He says, whatever way you turn, fate sticks out a foot to drop you. And that's so chilling that the universe is a place like in King Lear, like flies are we to the wanton gods that kill us for their sport. It's, it's so malevolent. And even that song, right? The song, I can't believe that you're in love with me. That song is about fate, right? I keep telling everyone I know that I'm a lucky so-and-so. You know, I'm so, I can't believe that you're in love with me. But the real message of the film, the real idea of the film is like, no, it, it, that's a joke. The universe is a cruel place and it's going to play with you. And then the cops are coming. I think it's our response to the way that the universe plays with us, right? So the, the, the great gimmick in the background of this movie is that Vera is either a consumptive or has lung cancer or something. Like right. she's not, she's going to die. And so she's committed to meanness. She's committed to risk because who cares, right? And that's that's hinted at two or three times and yeah. then dropped and um, uh, not utterly played He's out. He's supposed right? to have Sue, the bright future. Right, well, the point is, so Sue goes to Hollywood to chase her dreams Right. And uh, like two weeks later, she's like, nope, never mind. Right. And right. So what happens is she gets served a dose of reality. She runs hand in hand with her fate, but she doesn't act malevolently to malevolent fate. Right. Malevolent fate pushes her towards love. So, you know what I mean? Like it's I think I don't think that it's it's utterly negative. I think that what happens is. The truth is that Robert does not belong in the same car as Sue because ultimately his his choices are the same as Vera, just Vera's better at it. And I, I think that like the real con like consequences are supposed to be something that happen or get unfolded over time. Um, but Vera is like consequences in a dress. <laughs> consequences in a dress. Well, I think the unease of the film we talked about earlier comes from the fact that it's so that no everything this guy does. Is, is, is he can't get out of this trap. I mean, that's what the title means, right? Is that like, that's what a detour is. You're supposed to go one way, but something happens so you can't go that way. Okay, I can't. So I'm not going to go see Sue. All right, I'm going to go this way. And then he ends up in this, this crazy thing where he ends up pulling the phone cord. We haven't talked about that. Pulling the phone cord to kill Vera. That's, um, that's good. That's yeah. good stuff. Yeah. Uh, that, that was utterly unexpected. Well, that reminded me of that. That's the second Goodfellas. The two Goodfellas things in this movie are which he wants to buy the mink coat. That's exactly like where the guy buys the Cadillac and starts spending his money after Lulu Ponds the heist. And the second thing is um, after De Niro kills uh, Murray, the wig guy, and he says, I thought he'd never shut up. That's that's what it's like when he's killing her with the phone. He doesn't know he's killing her. But that's the whole thing is it's the only way he can silence her because she keeps coming at him and coming at him and coming at him. Well, she says, but she says, um, you're going to end up with your neck in the noose. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> of course, what happens to her. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. Great movie. I'm glad we had a conversation about it. If you like this conversation, let us know what else we should watch on Twitter at 15 AM and film. You could also follow us on 
Letterbox. Letterbox, which we love. Let us know what to see next. We take requests. We have listeners, wide, wide listenership from all over the world. So keep the requests coming and we'll keep doing these shows. Thanks, everybody. This conversation was longer than that movie. <laughs> <laughs>